I know we probably have been talking about this for a couple of times now, like in May Festival as well as Tech Fest, but I think this is another opportunity to uh, update on what's happening and why this is important. So what we will do, we will just go back and forth uh, about three, four minutes each, rather than me standing talking 15 minutes. And also you'll be pleased to hear that, as the title suggests, we'll do less talking, um, probably so that we've got more time for question and answer. So less is more, I think, is relevant in many areas, especially when, uh, I think, um, areas of where, you, when you take medications, because medications are poison themselves in small dose in a way, because they do have side effects, unwanted effects, or allergic reactions, or drug and drug interactions. So we, we are particularly interested in one kind of medication, um, which has uh, some properties which block the cholinergic pathways. So to describe what cholinergic is, it's, it's the, that, that um, neurotransmitter, if you like, um, uh, control the involuntary movement of the body functions. So like salivation, um, sort of um, gut mortality, etc. So when you block that, you could imagine what sort of side effects can happen. So dry mouth, blur vision, confusion, constipation, etc. So these side effects are probably can be um, unnoticed because people may think that's part of the aging process, particularly when these medications are in lots of tablets. Uh, this, this chemical is in lots of tablets which we normally prescribe. So that's why we want to focus on the, the, this particular type of medication. So I will pass on to Dr. Schweizer to set the scene a bit more about the uh, so I'm Roy Soizer. Hello, everyone. I'm one of the consultant uh, physicians just across the road there. So we're talking today about something that both Professor Mint and I are very passionate about, which is prescribing, uh, particularly in older people. We're particularly interested because as we get older, we accumulate drugs, but uh, more and more prescriptions. But I just wanted to set the scene. I mean, I don't know if anybody wants to hazard a guess at how many items are prescribed in Scotland every year. You know, country of just under six million people, five to six million people. It's now reached 100 million items plus being prescribed every year. So that's almost 20 for every man, woman, and child in the country. And it's going up by about 15% every decade or so. This is despite the population being fairly stable, life expectancy going up, implying that we're a healthier nation overall, but prescribing just goes up and up and up. And those of us that work particularly with older people will be very familiar that a substantial proportion of our workload nowadays is made up of dealing with adverse drug events or side effects, if you will, of medications. And it has been calculated that if we considered side effects as a single disease entity, 
it probably would be one of the biggest killers nowadays in the world, you know, depending on how you classify diseases. So it is something that's very important. It probably would be fourth or fifth on the list of, of killers. And certainly in my experience as a clinician, I would estimate that about half the people I see in hospital that are coming in acutely have at least to an extent a problem with um, an adverse drug effect of some sort. And the question then is, how do we reconcile that? Now, why is this happening? Why are we prescribing only to hurt people? That makes no sense. It's quite paradoxical if you think about it. And that is, there's a whole raft of reasons which we can go into, but one that we want to focus on today is that there's some evidence that there is a group of tablets that has a particularly poor uh, ratio of benefit to risk, and that is anticholinergics. That is why we're particularly interested in this group of medications, because studies have shown that a lot of the harm that comes from being on too many tablets occurs in people that are on anticholinergics, rather than other groups of tablets that are less harmful, perhaps things like aspirin or uh, medications for your heart. So anticholinergics are prescribed for a whole host of reasons, but the most popular indications are for an overactive bladder, sometimes for uh, depression, uh, sometimes for bowel symptoms. So they have a wide range of indications, and for some people they are very, very helpful. But nevertheless, for uh, others we know that they're not, and they present a, perhaps a soft target, low-hanging fruit, if you like, for interventions that are designed to improve the safety of prescribing. So having said that, I'll pass you back on to Professor Mint, who will tell you a little bit about some of the local research that we've done already on anticholinergics. So from our local data, we know that about a third of people over 65 will have the medication prescribed, which has these um, sort of chemicals in there. And also, if they are over 90, about almost half of them will have these sort of medic they'll be taking medication which has the um, properties of these sort of anticholinergics. So the, the, the extent of problem is not small. And also, from our previous work, we know that these are linked to several health and you know health outcomes like death, dementia. Um, falling, um, so the list goes on. So it's 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 not something which is um, to be taken lightly. But the the study we have done so far, usually what we call it observational studies. So we observe people with the high burden and low burden, and look at the differences in outcomes. So which is very useful because everything you know, observing can tell you a lot. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily imply causation. I, because if you see, like for example, if you just see two dogs going out there together, you can't assume they are husband and wife, for example, because that's just an observation. So similarly, if we observe something that people with high burden actually end up having more outcomes such as dementia or death, 
we can only say this is suggestive that they are causing it rather than saying they are causing that. So that's, that's the other side of the uh, difficulty in finding out what exactly, how bad they are. Although we generally agree that these must be the culprit behind these outcomes. So therefore, there needs to be some more robust methodology uh, and robust studies we need to do. So over, over time, over the last 20 years, I must say, there are a lot of interest in these medications. So we are working with um, colleagues from across the country uh, in Glasgow, based in Glasgow and Norwich, uh, as well as um, uh, Birmingham and other parts of the UK. Uh, so we are part of the bigger collaboration, um, working on that area in collaboration with colleagues from US um, but there are other groups which are, have similar interests as well. So the, the literature is, itself is quite extensive. Uh, we, are, we are one of the groups in the world who are trying to achieve that, you know, what, first of all, what exactly um, the effect size, we call it, you know, what is the impact, real impact of it? Um, and also, how can we reduce that? So I will pass on to Dr. Schweizer again to explain what government work happening in Aberdeen um, to address that issues. So over to you. Okay, thank you very much. So quite a lot of work is uh, the short answer is, is going on. So we have um, a couple of our, my colleagues here today that are working on, on anticholinergics with us. So one of the first things that we wanted to establish is how can we best measure the anticholinergic burden, the effects of being on anticholinergics, because we're not even sure if the important thing is just being on one or not, or is the damage or harm, does it accumulate if you're on more than one medication? Are some, are some tablets more strongly anticholinergic than others? We know they are. Does that matter? So how to measure anticholinergic burden is one of our first questions. And over the years, a number of different ways to measure anticholinergic have been developed. So one of our pieces of work was to do a review of all the world literature, looking through absolutely everything that's ever been published on anticholinergic burden and outcomes. So there are at least 16 different tools developed to measure the cumulative effect of anticholinergic burden. There are some are very, uh, contain a lot of different tablets, some are on a much smaller list. And intuitively, intuitively, you'd guess that they wouldn't all be just as effective. And right enough, we've done previous work to show that if you look at an individual's prescription, the different tools will give you different results as to the extent of anticholinergic burden. So what's the best way to measure it? So some of my colleagues have been looking into that. So they've looked at different uh, ways to measure anticholinergic burden with different outcomes. And one of the challenges is that some of the tools have been developed specifically to look for sp uh, specific uh, adverse outcomes. So for example, some tools were developed to measure how many people had uh, side effects from these tablets. So there's a scale called the anti anticholinergic risk scale, for example, that was developed for that. That is particularly good for measuring side effects like dry mouth or constipation side effects from anticholinergic drugs, but whereas others were developed to measure cognitive performance, risk of dementia, 
anticholinergic burden scale is an, an example of that. So unsurprisingly, some of these tools perform better for determining some of these outcomes. And basically what we found as a result of that work is that it's difficult to know for sure to give one tool that is the best, and there's probably still some scope for future work which we'll touch upon on next in terms of developing a better tool. The other very important thing is not just to measure it, but what do we do about it? You know, how do we reduce anticholinergic burden? And the short answer is, well, we just don't prescribe them, but we know that that is challenging. Some people are on these drugs for a specific reason. Some people are awfully attached to their medications, whether they need them or not, we know this. So uh, in my experience, when I come across somebody and I say, you know, you've been on these tablets for a very long time, how do you feel about going through them and do you really need them? Shall we try stopping? About 80% of the time they're delighted, you know, and uh, welcome any thoughts about stopping anticholinergics. But about 20%, they are very attached to the tablets and don't want to stop, and that's fine. So there's a piece of work to be done around understanding why these drugs are prescribed so frequently, why they are not reviewed, what is, uh, what, what facilitates their deprescribing, and what inhibits their deprescribing. So again, some of my colleagues have been doing a lot of work with prescribers around what motivates them and uh, what, what stops them. And uh, a whole ra raft of things have come out, out of that uh, piece of work. So the reality is that as prescribers, we get a lot of mixed messages. So sometimes we hear, oh, we're prescribing too much. You know, the average older person will be on nine or 10 drugs. That's too much. But then you'll see headlines about doctors under-treating depression or under-treating certain conditions. So we get lots of mixed messages. And the reality is so much guidance around on starting drugs and very, very little guidance on when to stop. So we would now want to move forward towards developing an intervention, something that we can do, that we can offer to clinicians and people who are on anticholinergics that is evidence-based, that has been well-tested, and that will work at reducing anticholinergic burden, but without compromising patient safety. And that is um, our next big goal. So unless you want to say anything else on our current uh, work, I'll pass back to Prof Mint, who will tell you a little bit about our, our future plans uh, as, a, as a final bit. Thank you. Right, so um, probably this is the last bit of the talk this evening, um, unless Rai has to add some more. Uh, facts. Um, so there are several challenges here, as you probably notice, that um, first, these medications are prescribed for conditions which people do need to take some drugs, so like bladder symptoms or heart disease or allergies, so they need to be prescribed. The, there is um, some general lack of knowledge in general practice or majority of the um, healthcare professions. So we, we probably know this more than any other doctors, partly because we are geriatricians and, and also we, we have a special interest in that, this particular area. So um, I don't want to boast, but probably we are probably in the world, probably we know anticholinergic burden than any other general physicians in that sense. You know, because we have done a lot of research in that area, we know what is happening in this area. So this kind of knowledge is not 
you know, um, um, available to everyone who are actually at the, you know, uh, working in the under pressure. So that's, uh, so for example, one example might be a doctor may think, oh, I don't prescribe anticholinergics without realizing that the, some of the drugs they are prescribing actually contain these properties, a chemical with these properties. So, because literature is quite versed. Uh, so I think one of the thing we are trying to achieve is through this sort of public engagement and press and media, we're trying to get that message out as well. Because um, if we are going to change that, you know, prescribing practice, that need to have buy-in from practicing physicians, as well as the, the uh, people who are taking the medication and starting to ask the doctor, does it contain anticholinergic property? And that will probably make them read up as well. And then they may reconsider and they may be able to provide an alternative. So the, the fact is that there are medications which do have the similar um, activity or uh, action uh, or effect rather, but do not have the anticholinergic property. So I, I think it is possible to switch the different medications. Um, the other area we are trying to entangle is the, the there are almost three schools of thoughts. One is about, um, this is more cumulative, i.e. if you take more drugs with the anticholinergic property, they kind of accumulate, therefore, if you add up the, their severity of the, or their concentration of anticholinergics, that become higher. The other school of thought is, it doesn't matter whatever. If you take any medication with anticholinergic, it's bad. So it's, the first approach is like, you know, the higher the was, and the second approach is zero is the best. One, anything one or above is bad. And there's a third approach where where some, some researchers think that if you target the, the, the medication with high load of these things will be much more efficient rather than targeting um, the smaller one. So giving you an example, somebody may be on uh, three drugs which has a very low property of anticholinergic uh, property which may score one each if you score them by any skills, so they will have the total burden of three, as opposed to somebody who will be taking only one drug, which has a very high anticholinergic burden. So if you think of the, somebody who is taking four drugs, three drugs of one and one drug of three, to me, that becomes six. Therefore, you know, if I move six to four, I feel that that might improve that already. But some people will say, Oh, you don't need to do six to four. What you have to do is you just remove the three drugs, and then because other three are not important. So there's a lot of um, debate as to how best to tackle that. So we haven't gone that yet, but I think we, we, we will have to look at that in a larger, steady, well conducted, as a kind of randomized study setting. And we're not talking about one study here either, because different populations have different risk profiles as well. And uh, so there may be a specific 
interventions targeted at the general population, so general middle and older age population who are on these drugs, as, as well as specific intervention for people who are in nursing home, people who are in shelter housing, people who have already got some cognitive decline, for example. So there are several streams of work we have to do. So that's, that's a lot of future work to be done, and, and there are a lot of groups working on that. And there's also probably mileage of reviewing what has been done, because when we are trying to reduce these burden, we base on the existing literature. So one of our work currently conducting in Aberdeen is to look at these individual schools to look at how robustly they are derived, given that there are so many skills, you know, we, we, we could probably do with which one is the most robustly developed uh, one. Um, I won't go on, but there are a lot of other studies we should be doing probably as well, like basic science studies to look at the actual concentration of these anticholinergic um, chemicals in the bloodstreams or in the gut or in the spine, you know, uh, the fluid which will go to the brain because these may have impact on there as well. So, but I, I think um, if Rai has anything to add, I will pass it on to him and probably we can have a break after that. We'll, we'll just have a break in a minute, but it, I suppose the only thing I didn't know if you wanted to discuss some of the, the work we're doing with our American colleagues, or is that a bit premature? We might have to kill everyone if we, you know, because the trouble is, you know, when you're getting new grants and things, it's always quite secretive because we don't want anybody to steal ideas and things, so, and it's being uh, recorded, but um, so some of our colleagues in the States who uh, work with us have already got money for a randomized trial of stopping anticholinergic drugs, specifically with the aim of preventing dementia, and that's that's good. I think we both probably have some concerns that it might be a little bit premature because we still don't know exactly how best to stop anticholinergic drugs, what drugs we should stop. So we'd like to do a little bit more groundwork, but we do have plans with our American colleagues to emulate that trial here because I think realistically we are going to get prescribers to change their habit of a lifetime. We'll probably need that randomized controlled trial evidence to say Here's a group of patients where we just did what we always do. Here's another group of people in which we tried to minimize the risk of anticholinergic burden and who's done better. I think we're reasonably confident that we have specific ways of reducing anticholinergic burden. They are going to be doing much better. So that, that will come. I think that's, that's in the pipeline. But otherwise, I think we'll, we'll stop there. Thank you very much for your attention. I'll call Barbara back in and you'll let you have a coffee. Thank you.